0: don't you open your Bibles to the book of Revelation Uh, as we continue our study. If you're using our pew Bible, open up to page 965. Now, I know um, that it's rude to read other people's mail, uh, but that is exactly what we're going to do for the next seven weeks. We are going to read these seven letters that were written to the seven churches in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. And the reason we're going to read these letters and study them is not simply because they're in the book of Revelation, uh, and not just because they had something to say to the original churches, but because they have something still to say to us, the modern church. So this morning, I want to do two things. I have two objectives this morning. First one is to explain to you The role or how Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3, the significance of the seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation, fit in the larger concept of the entire book of Revelation, because I think they're very significant for how you understand the entire book. Secondly, I want to unpack the first message, which is to the, the first letter, which is to the church at Ephesus. So I want to begin this morning. By reading the letter to the church at Ephesus, and as I do, I want you to listen for five things that all these letters share in common. In other words, so this morning we're studying the church, the letter to the Ephesus, next week it's Smyrna, the week after that it's going to be Pergamum, then Thyatira, then Sardis, then Philadelphia, and finally Laodicea, and all seven letters share the same exact structure. And so the reason I'm telling them to you now is so that as I read the letter to Ephesus, you'll be able to to mark those, and as we continue in our series, you'll see that every letter follows the same pattern. So what are those things? Number one, every letter begins with Jesus taking a title from from chapter one. Remember when John talked about and described what Jesus looked like? Every letter to the churches begins with Jesus dipping into part of the description of who he was in chapter one. Secondly, Jesus says, I know, to each and every church, and when he says, I know, what he does is then introduces a diagnosis of that church's condition, whether positive or negative. Thirdly, Jesus, based on that diagnosis of how the church is doing, will offer either comfort and or give commands of what repentance and faith is going to look like for them. Fourthly, all the churches will be commanded to hear all the letters, right, and there, that common refrain, you'll see it, he who has an ear, let him hear. As a matter of fact, that happens, as I said, to every church. So, in chapter 2, verse 7, then again in verse 11, then again in verse 17, verse 29, chapter 3, verse 6, chapter 3, verse 13, and verse 22. To every church, He says, if you have an ear, hear what I'm saying. And then finally, oops, sorry. finally, Every letter ends with a blessing that promises to the one that overcomes, and the promise or blessing is directly tied into a promise and blessing that we find at the very end of the book of Revelation, chapters 19 to 22. So, each of these letters follows this five-part structure, I'll unpack that in a little bit and show you the significance of it again soon with a visual diagram, but I just want to put that on your radar as I read the letter to Ephesus. So let's do that right now. Revelation chapter 2, starting in verse 1 to verse 7. To the church in Ephesus To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Verse 7, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So we will study these seven letters to these seven churches in Revelation for the next several weeks. And while each church is an actual church with its own unique historical, cultural, social situation, they still speak to the modern church because all the issues they face, the church will face universally throughout her life. For example, issues of being a gospel witness, faithfulness in the face of sin or suffering or persecution. The need for endurance, avoiding compromise, being separate from the world, yet loving the world, overcoming through faith and the hopeful expectation of God's great victory. These are themes that that are not just applicable to the first century churches and Christians. We all need to remember those. So, not only are the themes relevant to them and us, we're also told that this message is for all churches… I have pointed out that, that refrain that runs through seven times, he who has an ear, let him hear. And notice what, the, what Jesus says, to the churches, not just to the church at Ephesus or the church in Smyrna, but all churches. And while there are unique issues in each church, there are issues that will face every church and in some way, even our own church. If we pay attention as we study these letters, you will see either in your own life or in this own church areas that this, this, these letters speak to us. But it's not simply because the Spirit tells us to listen to the message to the churches that we're listening to them. It's not simply because of that we know that all of this is for all of us. It's also because of the unique Role or the unique structure of these letters and how it fits to the rest of the book of Revelation and how it reveals to us, it proves that the messages we're reading to these churches apply to all churches, to all Christians in all churches, in all times, in all situations. Let me illustrate that for you by showing you this diagram I came up with, or this illustration I came up with this week. As I turned that one on, there we go. Okay, so this is an outline I, I showed you two weeks ago, but since I just showed it to you two weeks ago, I didn't chance. I, I developed it more and changed some of the words so it was more memorable. I told you that Revelation can be broken down into five large sections. Chapter 1 made up the first section, and I think I called it the, the risen, majestic Jesus. Well, I just shortened that to the Lord. The second section was chapters 2 and 3, and I called that the letters to the churches. So this time I just called it the church. And I'm sorry, I'm going to hold this still. There we go. So it's not like you you don't get a, you know, whatever. The third section was chapters four and five, and I just entitled that God, and here to be consistent, I titled that the Lion and the Lamb. The fourth section, I used to entitle the global cosmic great huge war or something. I just, well, just called it the war, chapters six through 18. And the final and fifth section, I kept the name the same because it's just the end, chapters 19 to 22. Now, Let me develop this a little bit more. By the way, we'll we'll probably revisit this diagram quite a bit. The challenge with uh, these kinds of things is trying to capture complexity in simplicity. Right now, we look at our our revelation, and because they're numbers, and we're trained that you pretty much two follows one, three follows two, et cetera, et cetera. You just read it linearly, Uh, and that's kind that's helpful, but it's also a challenge. You know, the 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 chapter headings in your Bible did not get placed there until roughly the fifteen hundreds. Okay, so um, just because chapter 2 follows chapter 3 in your Bible, it doesn't mean the events are following in a linear fashion, right? As a matter of fact, if you remember our series, the Book of the Twelve, when I talked about the Hebrew prophets and how they thought the Eastern mindset, it's very different than us Westerners. I'll get to that in a little bit. Uh, the point is, um, there are some limitations with this. I'm going to try and capture that. So I expanded this section a little bit more, and what I want to point out is this. All these crazy lines, let me explain them. Just as each letter of the seven letters, the beginning of the letter and the end of the letter ties into the beginning of Revelation and the end of Revelation. In other words, at every letter, Jesus pulls a title for himself from chapter 1. At the end of each letter is promised a blessing directly related to the blessings in chapters 19 to 22. So, as the beginning and end of each letter tie into the beginning and end of the book, so does the middle of each letter tie into the middle of the book of Revelation. In other words, what this line is saying, and and I made it easy, so every letter starts with anchoring it in Jesus' character in chapter 1. He alerts us to what repentance and faith is going to look like, and he assures us of the promises that await his people who overcome Every one of those messages feeds into what we read in chapters sixteen to eighteen. In other words, what I'm saying this, what I'm saying is this: Chapters two and three, in some thematic way, serve as a springboard into all the issues that are dealt with in chapters six through eighteen, as well as informing us of the rewards that are going to come to those who overcome in chapters nineteen and twenty two all grounded in the character of Jesus Christ we see in chapter 1. So chapters 2 and 3, they're just not the stuff we got to get through before we get to the good stuff about the beast and all that. No, they're actually pivotal for how you understand so that when we are in the war section here and we start getting into the visions and symbols of, of dragons and beasts, the great prostitute and the mar- 666, and we go, what, what's going on there? The question we have to ask is, when we're here, what is the church being called to that applies to that? Gospel witness, faithfulness in the face of suffering and persecution, avoiding compromise, pursuing purity, right? Avoiding worldliness. Those same issues that we discuss here are all through this section. And the reason this is here is because after chapters 2 and 3, we get this massive vision of God's throne room. The reason that's there is to serve as the foundation of confidence and hope to all that's being asked of us in chapters 2 and 3. With that firmly in place, we can face anything that's coming that's listed under the description I call the war. Does that make sense? You're going to see it. If you, didn't get it past the, if you didn't get it this first time, you're going to see this, this diagram over and over again, but these chapters serve as foundational pointers to how the church has to conduct itself through all chapters 6 through 18. One final note on this, and I'll move on. Um, there's a lot of agreement within the church historically about here, from chapter 1 to about chapter 5, It's at chapter 6 through 18, we get all crazy, right? We get the preterist view, the futurist view, the historicist view. That's where it gets all crazy on us. So there's a lot of agreement here, and the reason I'm taking the time for this is, the point I'm making is that Revelation does not go in a linear chronological chapter division fashion, 1 to 22. And as a matter of fact, this constantly dips back into here and revolves until we get to the end. I'll unpack that as we go. I just want to let you know this is how that works. So, this is the forest. Look at that picture. That's the forest, because soon we're going to dive into the trees. Now, with that framework out of the way, let's look at the first letter to the first church, and it is the church to the Ephesians. We've already read it. I wonder if we were to read a Yelp review of the Ephesian church, what would we read about it? I think, honestly, this is a church that many of us would would be fine to attend, wouldn't it? Look at verse 2. Jesus says, I know your works, you, your toil, your patient endurance, right? So, these, they're, they're toiling for the gospel. They're enduring, probably a, a reference to the growing hostility that was coming against the churches right about the time that Revelation was written. Uh, they were out in the kind of… Um, scattered throughout the Mediterranean, and various cities wanting to show their loyalty to Rome would start persecuting Christians because Christians wouldn't bow the knee to Caesar, wouldn't bow to the power of the state, and so persecution started to pop up. And so that could be what's being referred to here. Furthermore, uh, verse 2 says, Jesus says, they cannot bear with those who are evil. In other words, they don't put up with that kind of thing, right? Well, that's pretty good. I mean, if, if you, you're a parent, you want your kids playing with the kids from the Ephesian church because they don't put up with evil, right? They like to walk the straight and narrow. Verse 3, they're not growing weary in doing all of this. They're consistent. They're guarding the doctrine. They're, they're exposing false teaching, and they're not growing weary. It sounds as if the Ephesian church listened to Paul the apostle, right, and followed the ministry of Timothy, his protege. What do I mean by that? Well, Acts chapter 20. Take a look at it. Now, from Miletus, Paul, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. Skipping ahead to verse 28, Paul says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Look at verse 30. And from among your own selves, will arise men speaking twisted things. So Paul's talking to the elders. He says, look, after I leave, there's going to be people who come out from outside and try to divide the flock, and even amongst your own selves. could be a reference to even amongst the elders. Some of you are going to go off and teach twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. So Paul has poured his heart to the Ephesian church, and now he's moving on. He says, before I go, i got to let you know this. Be alert because people are going to try and divide the church with false doctrine. Years later, Paul wrote to his young uh, protege, Timothy, who was the pastor of the Ephesian church, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus. Why? So that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Same theme coming through that. Later on in Timothy's uh, ministry, and their talk will spread like gangrene, and, and Paul calls them out by name. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus. Who have swerved from the truth. Let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. So it seems like the church at Ephesus had taken this seriously. They're commended for it by Jesus here in Revelation 2. Even in the second century, we have some literature from Ignatius, the church father, says the church at Ephesus was known for their orthodoxy. The church at Ephesus was known for their Christian living. They were well-behaved. They walked the straight and narrow. They endured hostility. They endured being misunderstood by the population around them. Well, if you're a Christian, that sounds like a five-star review, right? Hey, good church. I'm going to go visit that one this weekend. Until you get to verse 4, I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Wait, what? Wait, this is a church that's commended? How can this be? They, they loved the truth. They guarded doctrine. They rooted out the false apostles. How, how, how can this be the accusation against them? Apparently, loving doctrine is not the same as loving God, is it? At least, it's not loving God the way God wants to be loved, right? Right? And that's very important. You married people know very much. You may say you love your spouse, but if your spouse does not feel loved, you ain't loving your spouse, right? And loving doctrine alone wasn't enough for God to feel loved. Of course, this shouldn't come as a surprise. After all, the Pharisees loved doctrine too, didn't they? So it's not just doctrine, and Paul knew that. Paul knew it's not just what you know, it's how is it shown in your life? Is there transformation? Are you living differently? This is why he wrote, I, I put it in the NIV because I like the way the NIV brings it out. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Not just one or the other. You gotta have both. Persevere in them, because if you do, you will save both yourself and you're here as friends, you need both. If you have doctrine, but your lifestyle is not changed by that doctrine, then you don't understand that doctrine. If, on the other hand, if you have a Christian lifestyle, but it's not being informed by doctrine, then, then you're not really bearing witness to the Christian reality, right? If, if you're just living how you are, but it's not informed by what Scripture teaches, then you can't put forth what Christianity is all about. Christian truth doesn't just inform, it transforms. It's important to recognize. Christian truth doesn't just inform, it transforms. In the Ephesians, they may have loved doctrine, and they did guard it. We see that. They're commended for that, but apparently they didn't love it enough to give it away. In other words, friends, they lost their passion for the gospel message they loved to talk about doctrine, they loved to talk about the gospel, but they did very little to spread the gospel. They lost their love to be a Christian witness. They were no longer taking the amazing truths that had changed them, and if you've read of the book of Ephesians, you know how amazing it was. Those amazing truths that have changed their lives, they were no longer taking it out into the world as God had wanted them to do so. Now, why do I say that? Because a lot of people, when they read Revelation, they think, oh, they've abandoned their first love. That must mean they're no longer loving God very well. Well, I guess I am making that case. But they all say, well, maybe they're not loving each other very well. And that's true, right? You've all seen churches that are so theologically tight, man, that if you just believe something slightly different, you're out of there, right? You're just not in the club. We have seen churches so consumed with right theology as if that's what it means to be a Christian. And the more you read John Calvin, the holier you must be, right? The bigger theology books you are, the better you must be. And we've seen a lot of people crushed under that kind of Christianity, right? So, we can see how that would be the case. This church, so knowledgeable, but they've lost their love. They've lost their love for one another. But I don't think that's what's going on. I think the reason Jesus is grieved over them, what He has against them, is they're no longer loving the world by being His witness to the world. Now, why do I say that? Well, remember what I said, that each letter, Jesus introduces Himself with a certain characteristic that was mentioned in chapter 1. What's the characteristic He mentions of Himself at the beginning of this letter to the the Ephesian church? Look at chapter 2, verse 1, at the very end of it. He holds the seven stars in His right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Remember in chapter 1, verse 13, when John turns around to see who's speaking to him, and he sees Christ, and he's described as the one who walks amongst the the seven golden lampstands. It's interesting that every time Jesus refers to a church, he talks about a characteristic from chapter 1 that's unique to the problem that that church is facing. He doesn't use these willy-nilly. He doesn't repeat them with the other churches. And to the Ephesians, he says, I'm the one who walks amongst the lampstands. The point of a lampstand is to offer light. The point of a lampstand is to guide people. We first see this coming up in Exodus, I think it's chapter 25, when Moses builds the tabernacle by God's instruction, and there's a lampstand seated right there predominantly for all to see, and the idea, Exodus is saying, is that the light was representative of the very presence of God. You see, it was a wonderful metaphor to the people of God as a reminder of what they were supposed to be doing and their role to the outside world to be a witness, a display of God's glory. We talked about this. So that the world would look upon them and say, there's something different about them that's attractive. I want that. And this is taught in the New Testament as well. Luke chapter 8, Jesus says something very similar. No one, after lighting a lamp, covers it with a jar or puts it under a bed, he says, but puts it on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. You see, apparently the Ephesian church was doing great at guarding the gospel, They were just failing at spreading the gospel. Well, the natural question then becomes, then then how do you associate, um, how do you tie in a lack of sharing the gospel with a lack of love? That's an honest question, because the argument being put forth is they have lost their love evidenced by the fact that they no longer share the gospel. How do we make that connection? Because Jesus does it for us in Matthew 15, 18. He says, whatever comes out of the mouth does so because it's already in the heart. That's true, isn't it? The mouth speaks what's already in the heart. I mean, this is a basic principle, right? It's a principle of life. We share what we love, don't we? I mean, if I find a new snack or restaurant I love, man, I'm telling my friends about it. I'm bragging about it. I'm a born evangelist for those kinds of things. If I find a new hobby, I want everyone else to do it. And this is why sports fans love other sports fans, right? They talk about the stats and who played what and how the teams are doing. It's why car enthusiasts gather in parking lots with other car enthusiasts and share that. It's why it's why concerts are so fun. When we enjoy something and meet other people who enjoy it, we love that even more and want other people in on it. It's a natural reality. We share what we love, and the Ephesians' love for Christ seemed to have grown cold, and their witness disappeared. I want you to turn to Matthew 24. Keep your finger in Revelation, but let's go to Matthew 24 because I think there's a link we see in what Jesus is saying in Matthew 24, the first book of the New Testament. Coincidentally, Matthew 24, Jesus is talking about what we can expect at the end of all things, which is kind of what Revelation is about. And I want you to see the link between love growing cold and the gospel, the, the proclamation of the gospel. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to back it up to verse 9 so you have some context. Jesus is saying, then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. Verse 12. And because of lawlessness, because lawlessness will increase, the love of many will grow cold. So what Jesus is saying here up to this point is, look, tribulation, theological confusion, people claiming to be Christ, being misled, and and the lawlessness that it creates, people's hearts are going to grow cold. The love is just going to grow cold right, because of all this confusion. Verse 13, but the one who endures is the same concept we see in Revelation, overcome, conquer. The one who endures to the end will be saved, and here's notice this inferred connection, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So, people's love is going to grow cold, but Jesus says, but the one who endures to the end, this gospel is going to get proclaimed to all the nations of the world. And so, there is a link being made there between our passions and the spread of the gospel. Your love grows cold. You tend not to share it. There's a direct correlation, friends, between our love of Christ and the overflow into our lives. It is there. I remember I had a friend, did I ever talk about Mike Woods? I've shared my Mike Woods story. No? Okay. So, I'm going to share with Mike Woods real quick. Uh, Mike was a friend of mine. He got saved at 20, and before he got saved, he was a—he had his own business, making lots of money. He was a very entrepreneurial young man. At 19, 20, he owned a couple motorcycles, a couple of cars. Handsome guy, had it all. You know, he was—he was a a Portuguese, Italian, so just a handsome guy. All those things. Had a, a detailing business in Hawaii Kai, the richest part of the island. So his clientele: Lamborghinis, Ferraris, Porsches, the whole bit. Well, he became a Christian. And the Lord opened his eyes, and he got radically saved. He saw the vanity and the emptiness of his entire life, of all that he was doing. So he sold all his motorcycles, got rid of his cars, and he bought like an 84 Chevette or something like that. I mean, talk about a flip side, but he drives around in a Chevette. And then he got rid of all of his clothes because he associated that with his vanity. And he went out and bought, and I am not exaggerating. You know, you embellish stories. I'm not doing that at all. All he had was seven pairs of fluorescent dayglow Converse high tops, seven pairs of fluorescent dayglow Bermuda shorts, seven pairs of dayglow t-shirts and tank tops that all said, so 14, uh, seven tank tops, seven t-shirts, that all said, Jesus, no compromise. And that's all he wore all the time. If he was an action figure, that would be him. That, that was it. And, and, and Mike, with his business, he was so on fire. What he would do is he'd get Bible tracks and put them in all the cup holders. He would put them in the glove compartment. He'd put them in the visors. He'd put them everywhere in these Lamborghinis and Ferraris. And then he would reprogram every station to the Christian station in town. <laughs> and it was so hilarious to see these, you know, they're like, Mike, we really love you and we're glad this is happening to you, but please don't reprogram all 16 of my channels. I, I don't need to listen to that, you know. What was going on? Mike loved his Savior who saved him from a life of vanity. And, and what you might see on the outside was success. He was crumbling on the inside, and when he met Jesus Christ, he wanted everyone to know. And so he was out telling everyone. His girlfriend, who he broke up with, then she, he became a Christian, she became a Christian, she ended up marrying him, and now he's more… he wears other clothes. Let's just say it that way, Okay. <laughs> But friends, somewhere, somehow, the Ephesians had lost this love of the Lord that led them to tell others about this great thing that had happened. And the irony of it was is, you know, Acts chapter 19 tells us the founding of the Ephesian church. This is what it says about them. The suspense, just building up to it. It says… This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. What exciting times for that Ephesian church that it could be said of them that all of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Apparently, that was no more. Friends, Zechariah 4 reminded us that Israel had once become a lampstand to the peoples of the world. That's That's what that image there is in Zechariah 4 that Mel read to us. That they were an image, that they were the light to the world. But because of their disobedience, we learn from the prophetic literature that lampstand was taken from Israel and given to Christ, Isaiah tells us, and to the church, the new and true Israel, to be that representative. But yet again, here is another church that's failing in that very endeavor, and Jesus says, I will come and take your lampstand too. Does that mean the church would be obliterated? Probably not. But we all know you can have a a church and a preacher that draws a crowd, but that doesn't mean that the love of Christ is there. He says, repent, come back to that first love. Friends, love is essential to our Christian witness. Love is what fuels our witness. Biblical love is what gives us our witness. And, And when I say biblical love, I want to contrast that with our contemporary culture's notions of what love is, which isn't love at all. It's either self-indulgence, sinful self-indulgence oftentimes, or sentimentality, or or just niceness. Christian love is not being nice, right? That nice is such a milk-sauce word. You know what nice actually means, don't you? Um, Pleasant, agreeable. That's a word we use when we actually don't want to say anything bad, nor do we have anything good to say, but it splits the difference. Like, you're nice to your postman. You're nice to the Starbucks coffee barista, right? Right? but it's not a word that describes us. Let me just prove it to you, right? About the, you might say, no, nice is a good thing. If, if you love your woman and you share your love with her and say, I love you, and she responds by saying, oh, that's nice. <laughs> you know it's not nice, right? There's a difference. Love, friends, is fierce. Love has teeth. Love endures all things, believes all things, hopes all things. Love doesn't rejoice in error. Love holds on to the truth. It's got a ferociousness to it, a fierceness to it that nice does not capture. God is not nice. That's milk sauce. God is love. And that's a fierceness to it. I guess I got marriage ideas on my mind. Wives, you don't want a nice husband. You want a husband that loves any day. But here's the problem. As I describe that, we 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 can't generate that. We 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 can understand why the Ephesians lost it. We can understand why we lose it. Because it takes deliberate intentionality. And it's more than that, it takes the Spirit of God, which is, by the way, Zechariah 4, what's going on there. God is showing Zechariah a vision of the impossible, that he's doing a work that, that no one can deny, but it can't be by their might or by their power. It's going to happen by this Spirit. In the same way, we can only love when we have the Spirit of God in us. And so, as John is bringing in these metaphors of lamps and seven spirits, the idea is the lampstand is the church, the lamps are the Spirit, and they have lost the Spirit. They're not witnessing to the world anymore, and I'm going to take the lampstand away from you. I'll bring it to somebody else who will be my example. We cannot love unless we are dependent upon the Spirit of God and asking Him. Friends, when was the last time you recognized you don't love God like you should and you don't love others like you should. Are you confronted with that? Do you feel that? I do. I do. I know I don't love God the way I ought to, and I ask God, help me love others, because man, Lord, you know the church I pastor. Help me. (laughs) Friends, it is easy to think you're a Christian by yourself, right? It's easy to think of yourself as a Christian when you're by yourself. But how do you think of your Christian faith in the context of other people? That's where our love is shown. That's why I love the local church. This is where our love is tested, isn't it? Right? A group of people, all imperfect, right? Some are great. Some are annoying, right? Some are difficult. Some are downright awkward. And I'm not thinking of any of you in particular, so don't, don't send me emails, right? I'm just, that's the reality. How is my Christian life seen in that context? Can I really think of myself as a Christian if I'm not loving people well and loving people with that kind of strength that only God can give? The point I'm getting at here is I'm running late. sorry. Knowledge is not enough. You can have a head full of smarts and a heart made of stone, just as easily as anyone else. We need that love of Christ. We need the dependency on the Holy Spirit. And friends, as I said, that's can people tell that you are a disciple by the way you love others? other Christians, even non-Christians. Can they tell? Maybe you don't know how. Well, then, brother, brother and sister, I'm just so grateful that you're in a local church because maybe you can learn. You can join one of our Disciple Makers class when it gets started again and gain instruction. You can go out to the spectrum with our young, young adults in Aletheia and go street witnessing and gain experience. You, you can go out with Tristan and Jackie and, and give out home, backpacks to the homeless and gain perspective. From just being in a local church, you can gain instruction, gain experience, gain perspective to start warming your heart to the things that matter. And, and if you can't witness with your words, maybe you can witness with your works. You, you can work with uh, Steve Smeltzer. Steve, are you in here? Why do I always say that? They're never here. These people do to come to this church. You can work with Steve. Um, he's going up to the Paradise, remember the Paradise Fires, to rebuild people's homes as a witness of Jesus Christ. You can do that. Friends, you don't have to be the best at it. I mean, you might even be bad at it, but, but get at it, whatever it is. Because friends, as the world grows darker, here's the good news. Even a faint light shines brightly. So you don't have to be the best at it. Love covers a multitude of awkward moments, right? If you love people, there's just about any, there's anything, you can't do anything. I mean, if you love someone, that covers up a lot of awkwardness. I'm sure when they went out handing out backpacks, the thing that matters is you love these people. And when they got that, they, they don't need to know anything else. We're part of a local church. We can learn that together. Yes, we have to guard the gospel, but we have to spread it as well. And I recognize, friends, it's increasingly clear the world does not want the church. But as I read Scripture, it becomes even more clear. That's why the world needs the church. We need to be the lampstands. i got to conclude. Verse 7, the Spirit says, Jesus says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. We are being invited into the very presence of God, right? We are being invited to enjoy the very thing we're tasked to do here, to be a light to the presence of God, right? And and, and the reality is we actually have it. Emmanuel, God is with us. Our mere job is to give it away. He who has an ear, let him hear. Let me make this very applicable. Please, friends, this week, ask the Lord, are you loving him the way he wants to be loved? Or are you just loving him the way you think he wants to be loved? Because what he's going to tell you is, if you love me, love others. If you can't love other people, then you cannot love me. If you can't love other people whom you see, you cannot love me who you do not see. And by the way, I've said this before, loving Jesus is easy. Loving me is the hard part, right? You'd be crazy not to love Jesus. Can you love his people? Ask this week in prayer, Lord, am I loving you the way you want me to love you? And ask him to help you love others well. Help them love others better so that He will grant to you to eat of the tree of life. Let's pray. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.